You're listening to Talks from the Apostolic Johannite Church. All right. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I am Juliana Eimer, and I'm going to say a little bit today about one of our saints, Saint Hildegard of Bingen, uh, and the unofficial title of this talk at the request of His Grace is uh, Hildegard of Bingen, 12th century genius and patron saint of getting shit done. Because this woman, <laughs> just her creative energy in all areas of life is just astounding. And what that's one of the things I'm going to try to convey. Um, I'm going to just give, in this talk, I'm going to just try to give a sense of the breadth of her work, of her accomplishments. Um, I'll give a bit of a biographical outline. Uh, I'll talk about the different dimensions of her work. Uh, and then I will conclude by talking about a couple of the elements of her writing, especially, that I find really interesting for myself and um, that really resonate with me as uh, Yoanite. <coughs> so we can start with the biographical stuff. Uh, she lived in the 12th century through a large portion of it. She was born around 1098. Uh, she was the daughter of a noble family in service to the Count of Sponheim. And she was both sickly and prone to visions at a very early age. And both of these factors likely contributed to her family's decision to offer her as an oblate to the Benedictine monastery at Disabodenburg. Uh, and for those of you who may not be aware, I certainly didn't know this until I was reading about Hildegard. Uh, the tradition of the oblate at that time was something practiced by uh, some families. They would basically pledge their child to a uh, Benedictine monastery. Uh, and in some ways, this was uh, not just a way of getting the child's fate sorted out, but uh, it was a way of gaining favor with the church and with God for themselves. And we know that Hildegard herself, later in life, she felt a genuine calling to monastic life from the beginning, but she herself would later criticize this practice of committing children to that kind of thing, um, basically arguing that these are choices that should be made by people who are old enough to decide for themselves. Uh, the religious vocation isn't something that should just be foisted upon a child. And she accused the parents of, in essence, taking the easy way out of trying to obtain favor with God and the church by committing their children to a life that they were not themselves willing to undertake. Um, there's some debate about the timeline of when she entered religious life. And as far as I can tell, modern scholars uh, agree that likely a story is that she would have been placed uh, at around the age of eight in the care of a woman named Jutta of Sponheim a girl who is, I think, six or seven years her elder, uh, and very, very religiously oriented. And then uh, six years after that, Jutta was enclosed in a hermitage at Disabodenburg, and Hildegard joined her, along with other young girls and women who were attracted by Jutta's growing reputation as a visionary and an ascetic. So there was this period while she was uh, living in this enclosure with Jutta, uh, associated with the monastery at uh, Disabodenberg. And during this time, Hildegard would have learned how to read and write, uh, mostly through recitation and study of the Psalms. She didn't receive the kind of sophisticated education in the liberal arts that would have been available to many male monks of that period. Uh, but she certainly, she, she talks about herself as unlearned and unlettered, and that certainly doesn't mean that she's illiterate by any stretch. It just means that she doesn't have the hardcore scholastic training that uh, other monastics might have had. Uh, we figure she probably would have begun her musical training at this point as well, uh, which would have included possibly musical notation, as well as instruction in the psaltery, a stringed instrument that was used at the time. So when Hildegard was 38, Jutta died, and the other nuns unanimously elected Hildegard as their magistra. Uh, and at that point, the abbot at Disabodenburg, a guy named Kuno, offered her the position of prioress. 
But Hildegard was starting to feel that her community of nuns was growing too large to remain attached to the monastery. She felt that they needed their own institution in order, in order to really thrive. And so the next 10 years or so was basically a period of struggle while she tried to get permission from Disabodenberg and eventually from uh, the superiors, <laughs> um, the archbishop, to move herself and her nuns to a new convert at the a nearby site of Rupertsburg. Uh, one of the reasons why Kuno and the uh, folks at Disabodenberg were reluctant to let her leave was because she was already she already had quite a reputation for sanctity. Uh, so she brought a lot of good publicity, a lot of uh, good vibes, and a lot of financial contributions to the monastery. So she was quite an asset. They didn't want to let her leave, but eventually she left. <laughs> she managed to, to do what was needed. <coughs> what I find astounding is that in the midst of all of her normal administrative labors as, you know, taking care of all of these nuns, and in the midst of these wrangles to get them all relocated to the new site, she also managed to compose her first major visionary work, uh, known as the Scivius, and we'll talk about that a bit more in a second. Uh, this was a work that uh, received approval from the Pope himself in 1147 and 48, uh, and that was really part of what got her career as a visionary and a prophet uh, going in a big way. She would go on to produce two other major visionary texts, uh, a large number of musical compositions, two works of medicine and natural history, which are uh, actually available in English translation if you folks are interested in that. And all the while, of course, she's also keeping up a steady stream of correspondence with all kinds of uh, famous and influential people and going on the occasional preaching tour. So she does all of this, uh, lives a tremendously fruitful and active life. Uh, she died in 1179 at the age of 81, and very soon after, her followers and admirers began seeking her, pro her canonization. Uh, so it was obvious to everyone from the get-go that this was a very, very special person. Uh, and because of various reasons, uh, none of which seemed to be have been especially interesting. <laughs> it was just uh, a question of uh, administrative wheels grinding very slowly. Uh, the process of canonization didn't end. It wasn't made wholly official until within the Roman Catholic Church as a whole until 2012, when she was recognized as a doctor of the church by Pope Dem Benedict. All right, so that's uh, enough for a biographical sketch, I think. I'll talk a bit now about the dimensions of her work, um, which I've broken down into her visionary and literary work, uh, her musical work, her medical and scientific work, and her administrative work and her work as a preacher and reformer, uh, with more focus on the, the visionary, literary, and the musical aspects. So with regard to her status as a visionary, we know from her own account and the account of those around her that Hildegard experienced visions from very early childhood, uh, as early as the age of three, she says. But she very quickly learned not to talk about them. It seems that her initial assumption was that everyone experienced life in this way. Uh, actually, one of the books I consulted uh, when I was preparing for this, um, Anne King Lensmeyer, she characterizes this uh, very nicely, I think, as a kind of double vision. Hildegard was someone for whom the imminence of the divine in the worldly was just kind of a given of her experience. And so she imagined as a child that everyone else experienced this. And then she learned that, in fact, this wasn't the case. And so she stopped talking about it so much. And so it was only at the age of 43 that she found herself in the position of writing down this stuff and sharing it with others. And she only did so because she felt herself to have been ordered by God to do so. Uh, and basically, you know, the, the sense she got was that if she didn't do this, if she didn't write down these things, she would be really, really, really ill physically. <laughs> and so 
uh, as a result, she eventually managed to, to overcome her reticence and write this stuff down and put it out there for a wider audience. Uh, there are three major visionary texts that we have for her. And the first is extraordinary in part because it is lavishly illustrated. There are beautiful miniatures that go along with this book. And there's debate about this, but there's at least the possibility that she herself might have really had an active hand in not just the writing of the text, obviously, but also the production of the miniatures themselves. Um, not illuminating them herself, but in supervising their drawing and maybe even sketching them out uh, for the artist. Um, so this first book, the Scivius, uh, is short, the, the title is short for Scito Vies Domini, which means know the ways of the Lord, for those of us like myself whose Latin is not perhaps what it could be. <laughs> um, in terms of format, this work consists of a series of visions uh, and this is Hildegard's description of what was shown to her. And each vision is followed by an explanation of the elements of what has been shown. And what's really cool about the explanations is that it's not Hildegard personally interpreting what she's making of these visions. Instead, the interpretation or explanation is the recording of what a voice from heaven said to her regarding what she was seeing. So all of this is as much is presented as objectively as possible. Hildegard doesn't want in any way to be putting this forth as something that she herself is making up or elaborating on or interpreting. It's all just stuff that is coming to her directly from the source. So in the Scivius, which is uh, very, very long, it's about 600 pages long, <laughs> um, in the Scivius we find the story of the creation and fall, uh, the story of the appearance of Christ, uh, discussion of the role of the church and the sacraments, and of uh, the coming kingdom of God, all revealed in very striking imagery, uh, very, very vivid colors and sounds. It's a really multi-dimensional allegorical portrayal of these events. Uh, and then the final section of this work includes songs and an early version of what would be uh, later her musical morality play, uh, which again, I'll talk about in a couple minutes. Uh, so she put forth this major work. Uh, later on, she composed two other major visionary works, uh, the Liber Vitae Meritorum and uh, the De Operazione Dei, uh, which are less well known, but are still just fascinating, full of wonderful things. Now, I do want to mention one modern theory about uh, an origin or a contributing factor in her visionary experience. Uh, and you may have heard of this. This is the migraine theory. Uh, so a lot of clever people have looked at Hildegard's description of what's going on in the visions and correlated that with her description of her physical ailments and said, huh, this seems pretty clearly to have been a woman who suffered from migraines. Uh, you know, so some of the distinctive features of the visions, the sparks, the scintillating lights, the images of crenellations and masonry, these are all very characteristic of a certain kind of migraine. Uh, and so some modern scholars, including uh, uh, Oliver Sacks, whom, of course, I'm sure you folks have heard of, uh, a lot of them have concluded that, yeah, there's definitely some migraine stuff here going on. And then, of course, the question is whether this would invalidate uh, either the source or the content of the visions. To me, it seems pretty clearly that it just doesn't, right? Um, and Oliver Sacks, to his great credit, says no. Um, you know, it, what matters is what, what she does with this. Um, and Hildegard herself, I think, gets this because she, when she talks about her illness, she talks about it as something very physical, but it's no less something that is given to her by God for all of that. Uh, you know, this is someone for whom there isn't a big divide between the things that God does and the things that are happening physically or in the natural world. So I think we can look at the, the migraine theory and say, yeah, that's, that's a really interesting explanation for how this stuff happens without in any way invalidating what is going on or what it means for her or for us. So if she had just produced all of this visionary literature, 
that in itself would have been enough to secure her a reputation, a well-earned reputation for being a, a great thinker, a great writer, a great artistic personality. Uh, but in addition to this, she also had enormous musical achievements. Uh, and in fact, a lot of people know her music before they know anything else of her. That was certainly my first exposure to her. Uh, so she left behind her a cycle of more than 70 songs known as the Symphonia Harmoniae Celestium Revelationum, <laughs> the Symphony of the Harmony of Celestial Revelations, which is a wonderful title. Uh, and then in addition to this, she left uh, what is arguably the earliest known medieval morality play. Uh, I call it her rock opera, unforgivably. <laughs> um, it's more of a liturgical opera or uh, liturgical musical play called the Ordo Virtutum, the order or the play of the virtues. Uh, and then later, I think, either during this presentation at the end or afterwards, maybe around lunchtime, I have a couple of selections of this that I found on Spotify. They've got a great Hildegard selection on Spotify, by the way. <laughs> and I figured I could play a little bit of that for you folks, for anyone who's interested. Um, but I'll say a bit about where her work stands musically. Um, for those who know about such things, uh, I don't really count in that group, but for people who are expert in the musical traditions of the 12th century in Europe. Um, it's generally accepted that her work is both within and kind of apart from the broader musical traditions at that time. Uh, in part because, again, she didn't have the standard education that most musicians at that time would have had. And in some ways this leaves her much freer to do some creative stuff that wouldn't have really been on the radar for some, some of her male contemporaries. Her work is monophonic, uh, so there's one melodic line at the time. That was how things were done then. But it tends to have a much wider melodic range than most Gregorian chants, uh, which in some ways makes it much more challenging for the singers. I can't even imagine being a nun in her convent and having no voice at all. It's like, okay, uh, this is what I'm supposed to sing. That's just not going to happen. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's quite melodically engaging and melodically challenging. Uh, she also, her work is distinctive. She uses a lot of melisma, which is where you use a lot of notes for a single syllable. Uh, and musicologists have also really pointed to the close relationship between the music and the text. Uh, you know, so she's composing both the music and the, the words <coughs> for this. Uh, and the music of this song cycle would have been used in a liturgical context. These are things that would have been sung on an everyday basis as part of the rhythm of life and the rhythm of worship in this Benedictine community. Um, with regard to the Ordo Virtutum, her musical morality play, this is just a fascinating work. It tells the story of anima, the soul. And the soul finds itself incarnated. It is initially very happy in the company of the virtues. But the problem with anima is that it just wants to go straight to heaven. It's like, oh, hey, existence, awesome. Let me go straight to heaven. And the virtues say, no, you have to live first. And the soul very quickly succumbs to despair. You know, so initially the soul is elated. It doesn't realize its, its situation, how difficult things are going to be, and then succumbs to despair when the truth is brought home to it. And at that point, it gets led astray by the devil, who has a speaking part in uh, this. It's the only speaking part. Everyone else gets to sing, but the devil can only croak in this sort of immelodious cawing kind of thing. If, if we listen to the music, we'll get to hear it. It's kind of amazing. Uh, so the soul gets led astray by the devil. There's an interlude where the virtues uh, personified, speak for themselves, talk about what they're all about. And then you see the soul returning repentant. Uh, the virtues accept the soul back in a way that is very kind and forgiving. And then together, the virtues and the soul reject the devil, defeat it, and bind it. So it's a really neat piece of music and a really neat piece of psychodrama. Um, 
And like I said, I hope we get the chance to listen to some of it. The last thing I wanted to mention with regard to music, uh, for Hildegard, it does seem to have been very much at the heart of convent life and at the heart of religious life. And there are, is one of the letters where she talks about her theory of music and basically tells us in this letter that one of the many things lost by humanity in the fall was the divine voice that was possessed by Adam at the beginning. This divine voice that was fully in harmony with the voices of the angels. A voice that was so divine that if we were to hear it nowadays, it just, we wouldn't be able to bear it. And this is something that we lose in our fall away from the divine. And so the closest we come to this, and in some ways the closest most of us will come to a divine experience in life, will be in song when we raise our voices or when we use musical instruments uh, to musically praise the divine. Music is, for Hildegard, the way in which, while still in this realm, we can partake through our senses, through our bodily experience, in the experience of heaven. And you can just imagine how important that is for her. Music for her, and I think this is one of the takeaways for me from this, music for her is a very transformative spiritual practice. Um, there was a really tragic, wrenching, difficult experience that she had towards the end of her time, the end of her life. Uh, and this was at uh, the convent at Rupertsburg. And there was a, a burial ground, a cemetery associated with the convent. And there was a nobleman, we don't know his name, but we know that he had done some pretty bad stuff. He had been excommunicated. But before the end of his life, he had sought and received reconciliation. And Hildegard, I think, had it on fairly good authority that this was the case. And so this fellow wanted to be buried uh, on the, in the convent grounds, and she said yes, absolutely, because he, had not, he was not excommunicated at that point. He had been reconciled. So she permitted him to be interred there. At which point the prelates of Mainz, the larger jurisdiction, got all up in arms. They really had their knickers in a twist. As far as they were concerned, this guy was still excommunicated. He ought not to be buried there. Uh, they wanted him to be disinterred, booted out. Hildegard said no. <laughs> she was appalled at the idea. She stood her ground. And as a result of this conflict for a while, the she, was, she and her nuns were put under an interdict, part of which was that they were not allowed to sing. Um, they were only allowed to quietly intone the parts of the, the services that they normally would have sung. And this was actually the occasion for this letter I was talking about, where she, you know, in this impassioned way, uh, tells these prelates that, you know, what they're doing from what they're doing to her and the nuns is taking away this incredibly valuable, incredibly important part of their religious practice. So she got her way. You know, before her death, the interdict was lifted. The nuns were allowed to sing again. <laughs> this woman had, I think, the most amazing strength of will. I am always astounded when I read about just what she managed to, to get away with. <laughs> um, and I'm really grateful that she used her powers for good rather than evil, because she could have been a really, really terrible tyrant if she had been in a different person in different places and times. So um, I'll just briefly touch on uh, the other two dimensions of her work that I wanted to discuss. Uh, so I'd mentioned that she composed works on medicine and natural history. Uh, there is a little bit of debate about the authenticity of these works. Um, good grounds for accepting them as hers, but also uh, in some ways the writing style and the content is not as distinctive. And so there have been people who say, no, no, this is not authentic. Uh, but I'm inclined to think, you know, why not? <laughs> um, and what I like about this, it's, you know, in terms of content, a lot of it is uh, very typical 12th century medieval beliefs. Uh, but it does show a real attentiveness to and care for bodily and natural things. This is not a person who in any way wanted to reject the world. 
she is not someone who hated the body. Uh, in fact, she, ar she argued against a strongly ascetic lifestyle. She argued that monks and nuns should behave moderately, that there's no special virtue in torturing and depriving the body for its own sake. Uh, so, you know, again, someone who seems to have really had an appreciation for the world in an appropriate way, and one that I know for me is kind of salutary. If I'm going through my world-hating dualist Gnostic phase, I find that she can be good medicine for that. Um, last of all, uh, just a word about what she accomplished as an administrator and as, as a reformer. Uh, I've already tried to highlight just how willing and able she was to take the measures, measures necessary to provide and sustain a supportive community in which women with a religious vocation could thrive. Uh, and I think this is really important. This was the 12th century. There weren't necessarily a lot of options for women uh, in general, and especially for women who had a call to something other than motherhood and wifehood. And she made a space for at least some women who had that vocation to really do something with it. She was also, though, really sharply critical of what she took to be the degeneracy and the corruption of both church and state in her times. It is a little bit ironic. Uh, I gather a lot of historians, especially church historians and uh, historians of the humanities, they talk about the 12th century Renaissance. They say this was really a time of rebirth for church institutions, for art, for religion. Hildegard did not see it that way. She saw things as in this going in, uh, downhill pretty much from the time of her birth. Uh, and so she spoke out against that. She spoke out against uh, financial corruption. She spoke out against uh, the whole pope, anti-pope thing that was happening. She spoke out against what she took to be uh, inappropriate connections of and meddlings uh, of the state within the church. And because she was so widely revered, and I think because she gave such good advice, she got away with speaking some very harsh truths to some very powerful people. And she was able to do this without alienating these people. She was able to maintain the ties with uh, secular and spiritual authority that were necessary for her to continue to sustain her community and to continue to say the things she thought needed saying. One of the keys to her success here is that uh, in her letters where she is speaking these truths, she makes it as clear as possible that she's not speaking as the individual Hildegard. Everything she says is uh, something that is coming from the voice of God. She is just a conduit, uh, and her use of allegory in her letters really plays into this. So she conducted a lot of this critical reforming work through her letters. She was also invited on preaching tours which is just extraordinary. That is not something that typically happened, especially for women in those days. Um, so, but she went on these tours through Germany. She visited both cities and monasteries and convents. She preached to both clergy and laity. Everyone wanted to hear what she had to say. A final aspect of this work that I find interesting so in her letters, and she left a very large body of correspondence, in these letters, a lot of the people she's giving advice to are fellow leaders of religious communities, so abbots and abbesses. And a lot of these people are writing to her on advices uh, regarding matters of administration. You know, how do I deal with this disciplinary problem? How do I deal with the fact that my monks or nuns seem to hate me? <laughs> you know, what do I do to make this community better? But one of the topics that comes up more than once uh, is these leaders find themselves in a perceived conflict between their administrative duties, which are duties for them, and their desire to devote themselves more wholeheartedly to God. So they see themselves as torn between uh, their personal devotion to God and all of these priests and nuns and clergy that I have to wrangle. <laughs> and what I find really striking about Hildegard's approach is that she never lets them off the hook. 
you know so a lot of these people will say please 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 can i step aside as abbot and go be a solitary you know more contemplative monk someplace else and she says no no you can't and she doesn't just leave it at that though she does so in a very compassionate way and she also tries to get them to see that this conflict they perceive between their administrative duties and uh, what they might take to be a purer spiritual vocation this isn't a real conflict they are devoting themselves to god in just as an important way when they undertake this uh, work within their religious community uh, so i like that uh, again since i tend to be much more one of the contemplative runaway <laughs> kind of people hildegard is is good medicine for me in that regard So the final thing that I wanted to talk about are three very striking themes that came up for me in her writing. And the first of these is, uh, of course, the idea or image of veriditas. Uh, this is Latin term. It, I guess, used to be translated in English as veridity, uh, but that's not a word that we use so much anymore. So. Uh, the thing more often used by translators is greenness. Uh, and it's a word that she uses over and over again to describe the divine force of life as it is manifest in the lives, both physical and spiritual, of earthly things. Um, this word veriditas is wonderful because it isn't just the fact of something being green, like this cloth. Um, it also has associations of fertility, fecundity, vigor, health, vitality, growth, uh, and in all the possible dimensions. So plant life, we think of that, but also any kind of biological life and any kind of spiritual or intellectual or community life. It's all about uh, viridity or greenness for her. Uh, it reminds me of uh, one of my favorite words in philosophical context, uh, the idea of flourishing. You know, so beyond just the idea of happiness or health, because those are words that I think are very easily misunderstood or understood in an exceptionally narrow or limited sense uh, nowadays. Uh, the idea of a flourishing that would encompass all of the different dimensions of health and vitality, and that wouldn't just be a matter of feeling good <laughs> or feeling happy or, or whatever. This for her is uh, just a running theme throughout her work. And the centrality of this word and concept for her speaks to ultimately a very non-dualistic vision, uh, a vision in which the divine is in some way always imminent in creation. You know, it's always sparkling there at the edges. This is someone who seems able to see this fire burning in everything, uh, just as part of her everyday experience um, and this would make a lot of sense if she had been experiencing visions for most of her life uh, it's even more astonishing when we consider that the person who has this experience of you know general flourishing and uh, fecundity and vigor and health is someone who herself did suffer a lot of physical pain and illness and debility throughout her life this is someone who was able to see even her own physical suffering and debility as just part of a great, greater and deeper cosmic and heavenly vitality. And that, to me, is, is just amazing that she was able to do that. Um, I also, of course, think of this in relation to her own extraordinary creative energy and creative activities and production. Um, and this does seem like the truest possible response to this profound experience of divine viridity or greenness. She is someone whose own life was very green and very fertile. Um, and it seems just to have been a spontaneous response to how she saw the world, how the world showed itself to us, to, to her. In relation to uh, viridity, she also has this phrase, the living light, which is her term for God. Uh, she characterizes her own visions as shadows or reflections of the living light. And there's a piece 
a quote from uh, her last visionary work, uh, The Book of Divine Works, uh, that I'd like to read a bit from here, because uh, you get some of the wonderful language of light and its connection with life and with greenness. So she sees this figure, and the figure speaks, and it says, I am the supreme fire and energy. I have kindled all the sparks of the living. I have properly ordained the cosmos flying about the circling circle with my upper wings, that is, with wisdom. I am the fiery life of divine substance. I blaze above the beauty of the fields. I shine in the waters. I burn in sun, moon, and stars. And I awaken all to life with every wind of the air as with invisible life that sustains everything, for the air lives in greenness and fecundity. Uh, a little further down, she says, uh, again, uh, speaking for this figure that she sees, uh, thus I am concealed in things as fiery energy. They are ablaze through me, like the breath that ceaselessly enlivens the human being, or like the wind-tossed flame in a fire. All these things live in their essence, and there is no death in them, for I am life. I also am rationality, who holds the breath of the resonant word by which the whole of creation was created, and I have breathed life into everything, so that nothing by its nature may be mortal, for I am life. You know, so you get there this wonderful combination of this greenness of God as the living light, of the word for her. Uh, and there's no, there are none of the breaks there that we often uh, sort of fall into in, at least speaking for myself, in our own uh, ways of seeing these things. For her, it's all kind of a seamless whole. Last thing that I wanted to say that, uh, again, talking about things that are striking to me in her mode of pre presentation more than anything else. Uh, she does like to use the I am just a puny woman rhetoric when she's presenting things, especially when she's being critical, but also when she's presenting her visions. And this is something I think that uh, it can be easy, especially for those of us coming from a feminist point of view, to read that and just go, <laughs> uh, because in some ways she is so wonderful and it is really tempting to want her to be a feminist hero in a way that just would be totally anachronistic. Uh, and so I wanted to talk about how we might understand this kind of rhetoric where it's not just uh, self-hatred or misogyny or things like that. Uh, the first thing I wanted to note is that the self-denigration of the speaker was a common trope of the day regardless of the speaker's gender. So you read the letters of the men who are writing to her and they're all like, I am such a lowly worm, or <laughs> I am master in name only. Uh, this was just how people presented themselves. Um, it also is very strategic. It's a way for her to emphasize that she's not speaking on her own behalf. She is speaking on behalf of the divine, which is speaking through her. And this really adds to her credibility. Uh, this allows her to have an authority that otherwise just would not have been possible for her. It allows her to have a public voice so she can say the things that she thinks desperately needs saying. Uh, and she can say these things without being silenced or without being exposed to the sort of dangers that uppity women otherwise have often faced throughout history. She can even turn this to adva her advantage. Uh, she connects us with her criticism of the times in which she lives. She says, we live in effeminate times. Um, you know, it's her way of talking about the, the degeneracy of the times in which she lives. And she says, this is how effeminate and degenerate the times we live in are, that God would take me, a woman, and make me the person who's gonna be telling you these truths. That's how bad things have gotten. And it worked. People said, yeah, she must be legit because otherwise a woman would never be saying these things. But a last aspect of this that I wanted to touch on is that it might well for her have been a safeguard against acquiring or developing a cult of personality, uh, where the people would come to listen to and value her words, not because they come from God, but because they come from Hildegard. Uh, and I think that's always a danger. It's always easier to blindly adore and venerate an individual than it is to live up to the message that they're preaching. 
And one way that you can maybe try to forestall that is by this sort of self-denigration, where you say at every point, look, this isn't me. It's not about me. I'm not the holy person here. I'm not the special person here. It's the message that really matters. And I'm just a vessel for that. And that, that is the, the approach that, she, that she's taken. So um, that's uh, what I had. I think we still have time for a couple of questions. If anyone has any, I'll try to answer. Yes. Uh, Your Excellency. I'm a little, I'm a little hesitant. Okay, so um, I did a bit of reading on Hildegard a few years ago, and I'm, I'm, I think, and I think um, I read this, but my memory may be incorrect, so um, feel free to just kind of uh, throw a bomb under it. Um, I seem to recall she wrote quite a, a few things against homosexuality, but maybe I'm remembering incorrectly, and maybe I've got the wrong person. Um, I didn't stumble across any of that, but I do know that she was quite orthodox in a lot of her doctrine, uh, which was very disconcerting for me. <laughs> I'm sure. So it is quite possible that that she would have written a lot of that. Now, so in my, my my question, I guess, mm -hmm. is well, I guess if you haven't read it, it's hard for you to comment. But uh, <laughs> or if we're both incorrect, maybe it's hard for mm -hmm. you to comment. But uh, my question was, where would you place that in maybe in a in a criticism of? clerical morals of the time or something like that. But. Uh, so yeah, I think it is quite possibly that it would be quite possible that it would be part of, you know, maybe her addressing what she took to be an issue in within the various monasteries and convents that she was dealing with. Uh, I know that Hildegard herself had a very close, a chaste, but very close and emotionally intense relationship with uh, nun a uh, woman named uh, Ricardus, and she mentions in a couple of places that uh, there were people who, who said to her about this relationship, what are you doing? And I don't think that there was any kind of accusation of sexual impropriety, but it was a particular attachment that I guess was, was frowned upon. So it might be that she, was, that she was responding to what she thought was a kind of corruption or, or problem specifically in that sort of community. But um, yeah, and I'm going to have to look for it. <laughs> I, guess, I guess, I mean, you made the point a couple of times that when you're reading someone from that time, you can't expect anachronistic yeah. you know, social views from the person given where they're living and, and the... As much as you'd like to find them. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but one thing I would actually like to add to that, there is a letter that comes to her from uh, Odo of Soissons asking her to resolve a different sort of theological dispute. And he makes the comment that seers, visionaries and prophets, that one of the things that they know in their wisdom is what things to keep concealed, lest they upset the, the status quo. And reading that, I sort of thought, hmm, you know, I wonder it might just be sort of giving her an easy out or giving us an easy out if we want her to be more comfortably uh, in line with our, own, with our own views. But yeah, I think in some ways she might well have, have been more orthodox in her pronouncements than perhaps in you know, what she might have said given the totality of her vision. But, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a tough one. And now I have to go and seek that out. So. Thank you, Your Excellency. <laughs> yes. And I think it was also sexuality in general, because I do recall an issue at the time of her having, of course, you know, the male and the female in the monasteries were, they tried to keep them very separate. And I think it was part of her rules um, to, you know, for them to keep chaste, not only with their male counterparts, where they could be taken advantage of, but also with each other. Mm -hmm. So I think it was not just homosexuality, but sexuality in general. Yeah, of course, of course. The, the chastity and the virginity, she yes. saw virginity as an extremely high calling. Yes. And, and I think that you can take that in feminist directions. You can say that uh, this was a very important path for, for women's thriving in those days, and for her to valorize that is a really extraordinary and a very positive thing, or at least it can be taken in that direction. But 
But yeah, she was a woman of the 12th century. She had a lot of the views and a lot of the priorities that are those of the 12th century. And I think it's as tempting as it is to want her to be something different from that. It just, that's not really fair to her or to us, and it, it makes everyone kind of look bad. <laughs> and I'm totally guilty of trying to do this, so. Right. Sure. Uh, Jonathan. Oh, uh, just to, to quickly add for my question. Yeah, she, I don't think she was, she did write a lot about homosexuality, but always talking about adultery, sex outside of marriage and masturbation at the same time. She thought those were all equally bad. She, right. she never, specifically yeah. as far as I know, talked yeah. about homosexuality. So right, okay, that means that that's very, that seems very characteristic, that the problem with homosexuality would be the adultery aspect and yes. not the... Yeah, not just sex outside of marriage, but too much sex and masturbation, they're all equally bad to her, it's, it's not particularly bad, so. Uh, um, how did she end up, uh, so she's been a saint in our church longer than in, in the Roman Catholic Church. Do we, do we know how she, how she came into the AJC and into our community and was embraced as a saint? I actually don't. Um, I think uh, His Eminence might be the person to comment on. I don't that. know. I, I think she snuck in. I mean, there was a, there was, there was a, there was a, there was. I mean, it's a bad thing. It's just there was a, you know, there was a list of uh, saints, you know, an official canon and, and calendar in place when when I came here, and that was certainly, uh, you know, that's certainly been revised over time. I know that. Um, Did we inherit her from the EG? Uh, I don't think so. Because I, I know that uh, you know we, we single out certain individuals in the liturgy, and we're going to be having a talk this afternoon on the nature of saints in the AJC. Awesome. But uh, um, and it's going to be an open talk because it's not a settled science. But um, the uh, yeah, you know, I'm not actually sure. I think it might have come with the original lectionary that I had, um, which was very different from the lectionary we have now, which is which is based on the EG and the Liberal Catholic Church. Um, the one I have, and because I have the only remaining copy of the first run of the sacramentary, and uh, she was in there, so uh, I have to assume that her inclusion came from my predecessor. That's that's my guess, and we made sure she was in the liturgy. So. Mm -hmm. um, a comment and a question. The, the comment is, I have a two CD set of her songs. And I just highly recommend it to everybody. Um, it's so serene. And if there's any music that helps you like contact your inner silence, it's, it's her music. I play it a lot when I need to, to get quiet inside. Thank you. Yeah, um, it's gorgeous. Yeah. My question is, I read a historical novel about her, which I really enjoyed, but it was a novel. If there was a book you recommend either by her or about her, what would it be? So I have, I have just barely scratched the surface of works by and about her. Uh, you can get the whole Scivius. <laughs> That's available in English uh, translation. Um, How do you spell that? S-C-I-V-I-A-S. Um, there's the Penguin classic, Hildegard of Bingen's Sacred Writings. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff in here. Uh, and it's good because it touches on all the different elements of, you know, of her writing, of her <coughs> literary production. Uh, in terms of works about her, Barbara Newman is one of the leading Hildegard scholars. Uh, and she's written a number of books. This is uh, what edited by her with, I think, one or two chapters in it by her. Uh, and it, again, it covers all the different dimensions of her. And it's got uh, essays by leading scholars on her musical work, on her artistic work, on her prophetic work. Uh, and this is also interesting by Anne King Lensmeyer, uh, which covers a lot of the same ground. Uh, in some ways, it, I think, is a more middle of the road approach. Some of the scholars in Voice of the Living Light can, they, they make claims, and they're fairly upfront about this, but they make claims that are a bit more contentious. <laughs> and uh, King Can you Lensmeyer. tell us the titles? Because of the light oh. behind you, all I see is of course. dark shadow. I can see you folks, you can't see me. <laughs> uh, so the work by uh, King Lensmeyer is called Hildegard of Bingen, An Integrated Vision. 
Uh, and one of the major themes of this book is how all of these different dimensions of Hildegard's life and spirituality and creativity, how they all form a seamless whole, which I think is an important point to be made. And she makes it really well. <laughs> Uh, and then this text, uh, Voice of the Living Light, Hildegard of Bingen and Her World, edited by Barbara Newman. <coughs> and I can just probably leave these up here, or I'll have them today, so if anyone wants to get the names of them later. Thank you. My pleasure. Yes? I just have a comment. Uh, if you're an unworthy worm like me, just <laughs> lazy to read uh, books or biographies, uh, and if you're into movies, there's a movie, German movie called Vision, which is about Hildegard of Bingen, and uh, I like it very much. It is on my list. I yeah, <laughs> I've heard like only good things about it. But it's yeah, that Vision be great. Mm -hmm. Yes, oh. just, uh, it might have a subtitle mm -hmm. of like. Uh, uh, Hildegard Bingo or something like that. Mm -hmm. Awesome. I think so. Mm -hmm. so if you can find a version. Good. Yeah, I, I just have one, one more question. Um, what was her advice for dealing with a community that hates you? wrong and do it differently. <laughs> Actually, in most cases, she seems to have been able to gather from what her correspondent was telling her just what they were doing wrong, mm. so that the community was not responding well. And in some cases, they were not uh, imposing adequate discipline. In other cases, they That's were... That's my takeaway. <laughs> <laughs> well, as she was in the 12th century, there's no way for, to, for us to pull out of her works, disconnect your internet. <laughs> <laughs> but in some cases it was because they were being excessively disciplinarian or disciplinarian in inappropriate ways. And so she, she very compassionately gave uh, advice on moderation, which I like. Um, I like that she, she really wants people to flourish in their lives. It's not just a question of tormenting yourself so that you can get to God as quickly as possible. You know, she does seem to have had a strong vision of a community where people can thrive and be with the divine as much as possible in this life and have a responsibility to the people in this life. So, on that note, we should probably. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs>